Greening here on Deep Background for the 22nd of January. Interesting note, less than one year before we inaugurate the next president, whoever that's going to be. So the calendar is, of course, marching ahead. My good friend and colleague Derek Donovan with us for the podcast today and Colleen McCain-Nelson, my boss, the editor, vice president, you're the big cheese here at the Star Ride, but basically in charge of the editorial page, page, joining us today to talk about an interesting subject, which is, of course, in the news, and that is the endorsement process, particularly uh, for uh, the Democratic primary for president. And so, Colleen, let's start with you. It used to be newspapers, of course, endorsed all the time, and that was one of the primary functions of editorial pages was to do endorsements. But there's a rethinking of that going on, isn't there? Talk about that a little bit. I definitely think there has been some soul-searching among editorial boards during the last few years, um, in part just because of how we saw the endorsement process play out in 2016 with with 99% of newspapers in the country endorsing Hillary Clinton and only a handful endorsing Donald Trump. But I think also, a lot of newspaper editorial boards are just kind of asking themselves the question of what is the value of endorsements? What are we, what insights are we providing readers and how helpful is this? And so um, you see a number of newspapers making the decision not to make any endorsements. You see other newspapers providing some more transparency around this process, but um, it, it makes sense that after many decades of kind of doing it the way we've always done it, it's time for a reboot and time to just kind of ask ourselves some questions about how we can be most useful to readers. You, you've been on editorial boards in other places that have endorsed, correct? And, and of course, the Star endorsed candidates for president for many, many years. And yet, you know, the candidates didn't actually come to the newspapers in most cases, unlike, say, the mayor's race in Kansas City or legislative races that we might want to cover or Senate races or the governor, where you actually get a chance as an editorial board to talk to the candidates and make some judgment. The presidential endorsements are based on what? Just sort of licking your finger and sticking it in the air? Or, I mean, it was really like that, wasn't it? Isn't it? It really was. And in the past, I was on the editorial board at the Dallas Morning News. And, you know, to the extent that we went through an exhaustive process, we did as much as we possibly could to learn about the candidates. But at the end of the day, they weren't sitting across the table from us and answering our questions. And so that's something that I gave some thought to when I came to the star and eventually made the decision that kind of the principles that guide the rest of our opinion writing, which are a focus on local and a focus on original reporting, should also, should also guide our endorsement process. And so at the Star, we're not going to be making endorsements of presidential candidates either in the primary or in November because we don't have the chance to sit down with the candidates. We're not a frequent stop on the campaign trail in Missouri or Kansas. And so because we're not interviewing the candidates ourselves, I'm not sure what unique insights we're bringing And we should be clear, Missouri has a presidential primary in March. So this is not an ephemeral decision that impacts the readers in November, this actually has some real world consequences. Derek, you you were the reader's representative forever and still get, of course, all the letters to the editor and complaints. Nothing made readers madder than endorsements, it seemed like to me. I mean, is that right or is that not right? Or happier, too, uh, obviously. You know, right. You, you, and, you know, you, you used a term earlier, uh, put your finger to the wind. That's not actually what the editorial board has ever done. You know, uh, the editorial board did not try to figure out what they thought most readers were going to want in an endorsement. And that's not what we do today, right, Colleen? That's, that's absolutely right. I mean, obviously, we're interviewing the candidates and we're asking them questions and we're absolutely willing to make readers unhappy if we think that uh, it's important for 
for them to know what we know about the candidates. And so we try to make the process as transparent as possible and release excerpts from our interviews, release videos from our interviews so that you can see what we're seeing about the candidates. And so, you know, it, it's never been us trying to predict who's going to win the race or who is going to, which choice is going to make readers happy and not cancel their subscriptions. It's a matter of us doing our due diligence and saying, here's what we've learned about the candidates, here are our values, and, and here's how that matches yeah. up with and, the And just candidates. to be clear, when I say finger to the wind, what I'm suggesting is endorsements weren't made based necessarily on popular opinion, but they were based on what you've read, what the record shows, but not individual interactions with the candidates. Right. And uh, that was true for almost every paper in America, with one or two exceptions. And that's why it seemed less based on sort of a discussion than it is on on the record or whatever else you might be able to find about a candidate, and that was the concern. Um, and yet some papers are still continuing this, this tradition. The New York Times, of course, endorsed two candidates in the Democratic field. Um, you know, we don't want to like to criticize our brethren in this business, and everybody has to make it, you know, his or her own decision. But that seemed a little odd to me. It certainly has not been a popular decision. I, I think they made. We should that say first of all, Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren, correct, two Democratic candidates, and the Times recommended a vote for either. Right, and and so just to be clear, they are one of the few newspapers where they actually sit, get to sit down with the candidates. They interview, invited all the candidates in for in-person interviews, and so this is not a matter of, of just you know reading and, and watching cable news and offering your best guess. They did sit down and, and ask them questions, spend an hour with each each candidate. Um, but the fact that they chose two candidates is curious because obviously people only get to cast one vote, and also it's worth noting that endorsements to some degree reflect your editorial board's views on particular issues and Klobuchar and Warren certainly don't match up on a lot of issues and so I think it's an interesting question of you know if the editorial board of the New York Times thinks X about health care how does that match up with Warren and how does that match up with Klobuchar it certainly doesn't match up with both of well, them. Well right and if you're a Democrat trying to make a decision in that race and you're looking to the New York Times for some guidance and healthcare is important, you get really no guidance at all, do you? It's sort of a pick 'em approach. Other than you obviously know they don't like Buttigieg as much, and that's, again, not that much. But, in uh, such but a aren't, field. aren't uh, Colleen, aren't all uh, endorsements in primary elections a little problematic, too? In, in part because. You know, like we'll we'll probably make a recommendation here in the in the Republican primary for the Kansas Senate seat, where you have multiple candidates, and yet, it, you know, when we make that decision, it may be a case of who do we least not like, if that makes any sense, because because clearly our view typically has been not supportive of the Republican position on a lot of issues. That may change this time, but. Primary endorsements are a little different than general election endorsements. They are. I mean, you always want to understand distinctions among candidates so that you can then consider which candidates you think has have the best ideas and are the most prepared. And in a primary, it's it's tougher to find distinctions, and you have a lot more agreement. And you know, particularly in in this Democratic field, I mean, you have a couple different lanes, and you can kind of divide the candidates into a, a couple different camps. But at the end of the day, they agree on a whole lot, and they also all agree that they think Trump is terrible at his job right, and that they right. would do everything differently than Trump. And right. so it's harder to kind of separate them from each other. Right. And and But I guess the broader question is, do primary endorsements, are they qualitatively different 
than general election endorsements because you're in essence trying to uh, ascertain the best candidate, say, in a, and this is true for conservative papers too, endorsing Democrats, where, where you're trying to decide who is least objectionable, not who is necessarily the best possible occupant of the office. Does that question make any sense? I'm rambling a little bit, but but that it just seems like primaries, as opposed, for example, to nonpartisan primaries like the council races, where there are local issues that are not R or D, and we can make some some judgment on that basis. Um, it just seems like primaries are more difficult in that way. They they are, um, but it's still important, and you yeah. know, particularly at the at the local level. And you know, I think at at the end of the day, one of the problems with making endorsements in presidential races, whether it's the primary or the general, is those are the races where voters just have a flood of information. There's no Correct. lack of information, and they certainly have tons of options to kind of take in details about the candidates and ultimately make their own determination. And I think on the local level, as you as you drill down and you make endorsements in a primary for a legislative race, there's, there's huge value in that because there really aren't other sources of information where Correct. voters can find out what's the difference among these three Democratic candidates running for my legislative seat. Right. And that's another reason why endorsements at the presidential level are losing their value, right, Colleen? Because you just don't move the needle in this current environment. It isn't like a lot of voters are sitting around thinking, well, I'm not going to, I don't know who to vote for until the star tells me <laughs> what it wants to do or any newspaper. Right. I mean, when I was at the at the Dallas Morning News and we did this exhaustive process and worked really hard on our endorsements, I never heard from a reader who said, well, you, changed you know, my mind. <laughs> right, I, I was going to vote for X, but now I'm going to vote for Y, or I just didn't know what to do. And, and this was yeah. the most illuminating thing I'd, I'd ever read. And um, and so I'm not sure how much kind of added value we're giving readers with those presidential endorsements, but I can absolutely make a case for uh, value and insights and, and, and giving readers unique content by virtue of writing about races that are closer to yeah. home. And, and doesn't a lot of this also speak to something that in my 24 plus years here has been the most transformational thing in this newsroom is you alluded to earlier, everything we do now, we're trying to figure out how we can be Kansas City and you know you, you you there was a time 15 years ago when we wouldn't even think twice about doing a national topic here we just don't do that anymore unless there's something that is specifically that we can bring to it that's different right yeah. right and that's true in news coverage and opinion coverage and and I mean this is you this is what we can do that's unique that readers can't find anywhere else right which is why we urge everyone to subscribe <laughs> which is what I'm doing now Hey there, this is Derek Donovan of the Kansas City Star Editorial Board, and we hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you like what you hear, help us support this podcast and the journalism that reporters at the Star do every day by subscribing. There's an easy way for you to do it. Head to kansascity.com background. You'll even get a special discount just for being a deep background listener. By subscribing at that URL, you will get three months of unlimited digital access to the star for $1.99 total. That's right, you get access to KansasCity.com, the e-edition of the newspaper, our mobile apps, and more for three whole months, and it only costs you $1.99. That's a pretty sweet deal. Plus, you will be supporting journalism that makes a difference in Kansas City. So, go grab your computer or mobile device and head to KansasCity.com background. And hey, thanks for listening. One, one more question about the Times before we move on to uh, the Des Moines Register, which is also going to endorse. Does the timing make sense for them to endorse now? I mean, what, 
you know, let's say one of the can- the field changes, which almost certainly it will do in the next three or four weeks as candidates win and lose. And then do you re-endorse? I mean, it also seems a little strange in that sense. Right. Uh, that's that's always a delicate dance of you want to get as, as close to the election as you can within reason, but but also you want to give folks time to kind of digest your endorsement. And uh, and so, I mean, there's still a few weeks before Iowa and uh, and they were ahead of the Des Moines Register, the, the home, uh, the home state paper there. Uh, but clearly they had they had some reasons for deciding that this made sense for them. But uh, the field, as you note, the field could still change. And, um, you know, we didn't we didn't see them uh, interviewing the candidates who were not competing in some of the early states and you know how does that it's very in? arbitrary right. it's a big field and and again it could be that you know one candidate drops out and his or her support then shifts to another candidate or it may change a message and it just seems like you're chasing a running car all the time do you endorse before the south carolina primary do you make a different statement before nevada or missouri or super tuesday and to pull the trigger now and then in essence say, well, we can't really decide it's two candidates <laughs> seems seems just odd. That's but the now, best way to put it. We have to note, too, that we on the Kansas City Star editorial board endorsed two candidates in the Kansas City mayoral primary. Again, nonpartisan. We, nonpartisan, right. And the, but, the primary selected two candidates. Correct. And it's funny, though, because the two that we selected, Phil Glenn and Alicia Kennedy, N- and neither, neither of those made it. Right. right. And so we ended up having to endorse somebody we had not given a primary endorsement to. Correct. And, we had and, com- there, conversations there, was, and there was some angst about that. That's right. There's no question about it. Okay, let's move on to the Des Moines Register, which my understanding is will issue its endorsement uh, over the weekend. The, the Des Moines Register endorsement in the Iowa caucuses is pretty important. I mean, the, the Des Moines Register is an extraordinarily well-known paper in Iowa. They think hard about what they do. They do have a chance to meet all the candidates over and over and over again, see them in the flesh. That the people do pay attention to that, don't they? Absolutely, and and so I mean, for a few months every four years, the Des Moines Register has outsized influence, and in, for a paper of its size, and um, and so uh, not only do they interview the candidates, but I mean, they see the candidates over and over again in coffee shops and diners, and you know, at neighborhood gatherings. I mean, as as you know, Dave, from spending time in Iowa, I mean, it's really easy to just kind of trip over presidential yes. candidates in the run-up, yes. and you can see them in very small groups and in very casual settings. And so you can see them in in a lot of different scenarios and really get to know them, which uh, the Des Moines Register editorial board presumably has done leading up to this endorsement. And um, I think it's notable that after the New York Times endorsement came out Sunday night, uh, the next day, Amy Klobuchar had pinned to the top of her Twitter feed the endorsement that she had received from the Quad Cities Times in Iowa, not the New York Times (laughs) endorsement. (laughs) So that's how much it matters in Iowa. Well, not only does it matter in terms of the New Newspapers, not just the Des Moines Register, but the other papers, as you mentioned, and other organizations, uh, the, you know, they all have a chance to see the candidates, but they also understand their audience. I mean, the Des Moines Register is, uh, you know, ex- brilliant about understanding, you know, what its readers think is valuable and asking questions about issues of importance to Iowans, not to the entire country. Now, sometimes that gets into the notch baby social security issue or ethanol subsidies. Uh, you do, you know, at times the presidential candidates sound more like city council candidates sometimes in Iowa. But it's that marriage of understanding the audience plus getting access to the candidates that seems to make their endorsement and endorsement process much more valuable. Absolutely. And I think it will be interesting to compare just kind of the 
questions that were asked of the candidates at the Des Moines Register meeting versus the New York Times editorial board meeting and just, you know, the issues that they drilled down on and credit to the New York Times for being more transparent about the, their process this time and, you know, pulling back the curtain, letting us read transcripts and see video from their candidate interviews. The Des Moines Register has been pretty transparent in the past, right. so I assume right. we'll get to pull back the curtain on their interviews as well. And it's just interesting to see what issues they put at the top of their list yeah. and the questions they ask. Before we wrap up this conversation, uh, uh, does the picture, in your view, Colleen, surrounding endorsements change because the Democratic field this year is so amorphous? I mean, there's so many candidates. It's so weird. I mean, it, it just it, it isn't a binary choice or even, you know, three or four candidates, it seems, that there are all kinds of scenarios. That makes it even harder in some ways. It does make it even tougher. And, you know, dis despite all the frustration with endorsing two candidates, and, and I get that, um, by the same token, I think there's value in kind of giving readers a sense of, of how you line these candidates up and just endorsing one. If if that person doesn't win or that doesn't doesn't win early or that person it doesn't appeal to a particular vote, or, you know, where do they go from there? I mean, they still have so many other choices. And so I think there's uh, there's value in helping folks sort through the entire field. And, you know, we we faced a similar challenge with the mayor's race in Kansas City where we had ten, ten candidates. Um, and, and, and really good ones, and too. And really good ones. And so, you know, it, I think it puts the onus all the more on, on the interviews viewers and the editorial boards that are doing these endorsements, not only to come up with one selection and explain it and defend it and, and argue for it, but also to just kind of help explore the entire landscape. Right, right. And, and I think the, the, the better comparison for our purposes was the endorsement we made in the uh, third district of Kansas primary in 2018 with uh, Sharice Davids and the rest of the field, six good qualified candidates. And, you know, when you have discussions around a field that large, a lot of times you end up, in my experience, with sort of saying, well, I like her on health care, but I like him on foreign policy, and she had a good idea on you know, infrastructure or whatever it is, and you get tied in knots. And I think in that situation, uh, we relied a little bit on personal story and a sense of intelligence and energy. And not so much, you know, do you like this person on this issue or that issue or the other. And I think, particularly at the presidential level, Derek, you may agree or disagree, that's how a lot of voters make up their minds. Like in Iowa, you know, I like them all and therefore I like, you know, Mayor Pete because he is, you know, a mayor and he has this experience, life experience, or I like Amy Klobuchar or Bernie Sanders or whoever it yeah, is. Yeah, there's, there's a certain value to that, definitely. And also, even though the Times didn't cast their editorial this way, it also has value to those people who don't follow these races obsessively the way that people like you you and I yeah, do. Yeah, but that's not Iowa. Believe me. That's not Iowa, right. <laughs> but, but what Iowa it, is obsessed with what's One of the things on. I thought was you could use that for is you know you're going to vote for a Democrat, and this helps you if you are kind of deciding between Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, people, you know, two of the candidates who are further on the progressive side, or Joe Biden and Amy Klobuchar, who are both, you know, a little bit more moderate, that might be able to help you tip the scales a little bit there. Right. I don't disagree with that. I guess what I'm saying is when you see a field that's pretty big, and the mayor, uh, mayor's race in Kansas City was another example, at some point you have to say, you know, unless there's a disqualifying position on an issue you find important, at some point you do get to a, a discussion of, background history, intelligence, energy, things that are a little harder to quantify. 
And it may be that that's what's going to happen in Iowa, because I do think you get the sense, A, that there are a lot of undecideds even at this point, and, uh, and undecided caucus goers, uh, and, and B, this, the nomination process will be fluid far past Iowa and even New Hampshire, in part because people are making judgments on that sort of more personal level than they are on specific issues. Although, just to be clear, they're, you know, hitting each other over the head with issues and, you know, who voted this way and who did who voted the other way. But it just seems like it's the weirdest field, Colleen, I've ever, and I, you're right, I've, I've been going to Iowa since 1980, so, uh, and thankfully I'm not up there this year, uh, but, but it just seems like the, even a couple of weeks out, the field remains very, very gelatinous. Absolutely, and, and I've seen polling where a huge percentage of Iowa voters say they're still undecided or still kind of considering other candidates, which is amazing considering how much run-up time we have to this now, how many opportunities they've had to see these candidates. And it's also fascinating because you now have a big chunk of the field pulled away to the impeachment trial. And so, uh, you know, Pete Buttigieg and Joe Biden have kind of a clear shot on goal where they get to roam Iowa without all the the senators getting in the way. And again, most of the time (laughs) you would think, well, that's not much of an advantage in Iowa, you know, the, the classic story is voters there will say, I've only seen him three or four times. I haven't made my mind up yet, you know. So I think that dynamic's in play. It'll be fascinating to see what the Des Moines Register does. I mean, I, you know, I, I, first of all, I don't think they're going to endorse two candidates. I could be dead wrong, but I think they're going to pick someone. And I do think it may have some impact in Iowa, and because it has an impact in Iowa, it will then have an impact in New Hampshire and beyond. So, Colleen, it's so great to have you on the podcast to talk about these important things. We should be clear to listeners, we will do endorsements this year. We're not walking away from important races in Kansas or Missouri or certainly issues on the ballot, primary contests that we need to pay attention to. But I do think what we've tried to say to people is we are locally focused and want to write about things that a we have a deep knowledge of and b make a difference in our communities and then c where our work can help move the needle for voters and that may not be the presidential election this year so thank you so much colleen mccain nelson of the stars editorial board joining us and my good buddy derek donovan thanks for your help as always with the podcast i'm dave helling with the stars editorial board you've been on deep background (laughs) 